I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Dwayne Roussel, a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and Canadian sociological theorist. He is a visiting professor at the University College of Dublin, University College of Cork, and Nazarbayev University. Dr. Roussel has had to leave his position at a university in Russia because of the current war. You can support him at his Patreon, patreon.com forward slash psychoanalytic ramblings. You can also follow him on social media, links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. As always, thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at raw sin underscore. And you can get Rendering Unconscious the book at our publisher's website, trapar.net. That's T R A P A R T dot net. This episode is also available to view at YouTube. Just look for Trapar Films YouTube channel. For me, it's a problem of where to begin. I always have this problem, and it was already there in the anarchist tradition. You know, uh, in the anarchist tradition, there's this expression, only a beginning. And I always wondered, why is there only a beginning? How do you get to the end? And what I've noticed is in my work, much of which is going through four psychoanalytic um, um, for personal psychoanalyses, I'm in my fourth, is that um, at the end, you don't even know how to begin. So you just kind of begin anywhere, which is where I, where I stand. I, I, don't really, um, I don't really know how to begin. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficulty for me. I think that's a great place to begin. And um, yeah, so you're in your fourth. I have had three analyses and I was thinking... I had the thought recently, maybe I would do another one, but I don't know. <laughs> it's a commitment. Mm. It is a commitment, but it's also an addiction. Yeah. You know, for me, in my third analysis, I would say, if I'm reflecting right now, um, I would say that it was like I was still kind of scared to go to the analysis. Like I didn't want to go because I knew I would be confronting something or whatever, but toward the end of the analysis, uh, I, you know, I, I would say all of that kind of lifted. And then in my fourth analysis, which is the current one, I keep going back. I don't know why I keep going back. And I even said that one time at the, toward the end of the session, well, maybe five, 10 minutes into the session, I said, I don't know why I keep coming back, except for the fact that I'll say something and um, in 
a particular moment of me saying something, you will unexpectedly stand up and rush to the door, standing the session. And in that moment, I'll be surprised. And she stood up when I said that. And I realized why I kept going back. I was looking for some surprises, some contingencies, something uh, to break me out of the, uh, the, the, the predictable. Yeah, shake it up a little. Yeah. That's very cool. I've had one of my analyses was Lacanian, but it was remote with someone in France when I was in New York. Um, so I haven't had the actual like stand up and open the door experience. I've had the like, we'll stop there. And then the screen turns off. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I have noticed it's quite different, isn't it, on Zoom? There's something different with the body, you know, because okay, yeah, like you said, you shut it off. You don't get to you don't get to wait in the waiting room in the same way. Talk to other people maybe in the waiting room. You don't have the long journey, which for some people can feel like a pilgrimage. And for me it did in my second analysis, it felt like a pilgrimage. A two-hour journey to Toronto to see my analyst for maybe 15 minutes and then the two hour journey home, you know? Um, so I, I think you missed that. And, um, but there's other things too that, that, that can be missed. Uh, like I, I never would have thought about my body in the way that I did in my fourth analysis, like whether I'm standing up or sitting down, um, uh, which, Actually, it was a bit of an important thing because I don't know, I, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm not sure how much I should talk about this, but uh, I remember that I called her standing the session when she stands up quickly. I, I call that standing up for psychoanalysis. And the idea is that in those moments I see, oh, the unconscious still exists. Thank God. It's like, okay, it's still there. Um, and um, and I realized that I'm the one sitting down in the session. So I'm not exactly standing up for psychoanalysis. But when I leave the session, I'm thinking about, you know, the surprises and so on. And in those moments, I find myself defending my experience that happened in the session. So it's in a weird sort of way, standing up for psychoanalysis. Yeah. Before the session is over, or when the session is over, you will have stood up. For psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah. So what are you working on now? Uh, what am I working on? I'm working on um, trying to uh, write books and and give talks and be a professor and researcher at a time when I just don't believe in any of it, which is really difficult because, you know, up until this year, I was a bit like Zizek, you know, I was writing endlessly, putting out all these books. And now I have some book contracts. Like I, I have a book coming out, I think with Bloomsbury, uh, Bloomsbury uh, uh, titled Singularities, A New Theory of the Social Bond, um, which I'm trying to want to work on. Uh, and I have another book coming out that I'm editing with uh, Mark Murphy. Uh, and we have a whole bunch of contributors on uh, negativity and positivity and psychoanalysis in the clinic and in theory. And, uh, but mostly I'm just working on trying to care about it. 
I understand that. It's hard to care lately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm much more interested in things like this. And I know it's not exciting for a lot of people, but where you can just kind of talk to others again and and just kind of explore and hear what we have to say and maybe be surprised by some of the things that you say. Surprise, you know, because when I'm writing, I, I don't often feel that. When I do any academic work lately, I feel dead inside and I go, why do I do this? I feel dead inside. I'm never doing this again until I agree to do something else. (laughs) But that's my cycle. And all I want to do is make art, basically. Mm. And I love the clinical work. I love the clinical work. But that feels very that feels very different part of psychoanalysis than the, the writing and the more academic work for me. Yeah. Yeah, so in, in in this book on um, singularities, I, I I think I think what I'm trying to do is like I I'm trying to figure out if if there's sort of a fundamentally new logic that's occurring in the social world that we can see in some of like the new social movements. Um, in the new way in which war is happening, in gender politics, and all of these sort, sort, uh, sorts of things, um, if there's a new logic there that is maybe different from the sort of logic that we're offered from our mutual friend, I think, Slavo Cizik and the Slovenian school, uh, but not entirely opposed to it, um, a, a logic... Um, that very that that takes really seriously a certain type of stubbornness or certainty or non-dupery within the social bond. Um, that um, that seems to have, I think, um, uh, projected maybe a lot of insecurities onto others, and. Um, and I, I, I just find myself really worried about that. Um, and, you know, I was even thinking because, you know, I came to Ireland uh, because I left what was going on in Russia. I was thinking about how, like, a lot of the stuff that I'm reading right now having to do with the war, for example. It's all about how war is this deeply negative moment. Like, it's a negative period of history. There's all this death and destruction. And it is. It's traumatic and, and, and stuff. But, and I'm, I'm obviously very much affected by it. But I, I think it's actually a profoundly positive period of history. And that's what's really troubling. Positive in the sense, and I think this is what Zizek seems to maybe miss a little bit, in the sense that there's something... In like what Lacanians call jouissance, maybe you can call it jouissance as such or whatever, that is resolutely positive, that fundamentally refuses the mortifying effects of the signifier. And I mean, this is the basic sort of very simplistic thesis that I'm running with somewhat sociologically. Like when I look at what's happening, for example, between Ukraine and Russia. I see a fundamental incredulity to the symbolic, to um, uh, 
peace treaties, agreements, these sorts of things, which in my mind puts us in a completely different historical moment, let's say, than the time that Immanuel Kant was writing about war and suggesting that war offers us a perpetual peace because um, although it distributes us all around the world, it gives us the chance to form these enduring symbolic ties with one another through peace treaties, trade agreements, and so on. And I, I guess I've become very, like, extremely cynical, and this is my problem, and I'm trying to work myself out of it, but I'm very cynical. I just, I don't see anywhere in the world today so much of uh, a belief in any sort of symbolic that might uh, bring us into a shared world where we can sort of dialogue with one another and complain about things again in the way we used to. Um, so I, I think this is kind of where I'm, where I'm at. I mean, whether it's lack of belief in marriage, um, lack of belief in our professor's ability to speak to us, you know, what, what, uh, what Leotard was talking about when he was discussing postmodernism, um, incredulity to meta narratives, and so on. And so I see this as as quite pervasive. And although I I think what I'm saying is reductive, and I'm homogenizing the field a little bit, I think it's worth it just to provoke a little bit so that we can we can examine this really stubborn aspect, something that resists dialectical incorporation. What do we do with it? How do we live with that? Um, that's what uh, I, gives me nightmares, quite literally. No, but I mean, it's a really good point. And when you do look at the world, I mean, we're on a crash course. <laughs> you know, there's a serious crash course uh, happening. And I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I wake up every day, like, trying to continue my uh, the layers of denial that I can get going to like not have a panic attack. You know, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty terrifying to be honest. It is. It's and like, everyone, as much as I like need my little bit of denial to function, I think everybody does. It's like the one trip that I've made out of Sweden in the past three years. It's like, I just got horrified because I realized like the level of denial, not only of COVID, and what's going on is so high, but then like, you know, just climate crisis in general. And then of course war. And as far as I see it, the U S is like already in a civil war, even though they're not calling it that, but it's just, to me, it seems just like a different form of war where you have like these mercenaries and like lone, lone wolf guys, you know, blowing things up and shooting people every day. There's mass shootings, you know, it's just like, this is not, this is not a norm. <laughs> That's right. Or it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, um, it's like um, we just—it's like we're just moving from chaos to chaos, trauma to trauma. And I wonder if, if ultimately, it's because we're postponing our encounter with the signifier that would mortify it. And I know that's like a classical sort of position, but I mean. I hesitate to mention it. I, I'm just trying to be a little provocative. I, I'm, I'm willing to change my position, absolutely. And I do change my position. Probably in five minutes, I'll change it. But when I think about something like LGBTQIA+, and so on, I was thinking about how um, if you take, uh, you take it as a sort of 
broad and diverse group, nonetheless, it confronts a world, and it confronts a world that perhaps resists it or provokes it or whatever. And I was thinking, you know, one of the problems that I have with, not problems, but um, one of the rereadings that I have of, say, Zizek and Suponsik on this question is that why is there always another letter incorporated? This is the question. And Zuponsik's answer is that the plus that keeps getting deferred um, represents this difference that makes a difference. And I had the thought a few weeks ago, spontaneously while I was um, doing some sort of an event, that maybe it doesn't signify a difference that makes a difference, but a separation that refuses to make a separation, a separation from jouissance. So in the sense, you keep repeating there's always an, a sort of repetition. You can always add more to the chain and you keep going and going and going. Oops, I call it, you can call it the and so on and so on of the symptom or whatever. You can keep going and going. The trauma keeps happening. Um, but there's never been an internalization of the signifier that would put an end to the chain. And so that doesn't mean that somehow I'm like anti-LGBTQIA+. I think this is pervasive. This is everywhere. I, I feel it, you know? So um, that's, that's sort of where I'm at. I, you know, I, I was even, God, I was even reading um, Antigone, the Antigone story again. Um, and I realized Alenka Suponsik just came out with um, a new book on Antigone. And I just got, I have it in front of me, actually. This, which I read two pages of. I, no, I, I read three pages of. <laughs> I got to actually read it. Zizek's Antigone, which was from, I don't know, eight years ago. I, I was thinking that how, you know, Antigone seems to me to be a really stubborn person, <laughs> which I think um, at one point I would have thought is like the most amazing thing ever to have like real militant conviction or whatever. But what is interesting with Antigone for me is this fundamental resistance to offer herself up to any signifier. Creon, Hymen, um, it doesn't matter, even though there was at least one who was deeply in love with her from what I can remember. Um, so, so I find that really troubling. And, and I think what we need to do is look at the violence that's implicit in the stubborn Jewessons in the quiet jouissance and not just in this, in the, in the mortifying effects of the signifier. Um, yeah. What would you like to see happen? What would I like to see happen? I would like to see, um, I would like to see there be something that we're capable of believing in again not just me, I might be projecting this onto everybody. I know we talk about how we still have ideology and so on, but I think it's worse than that. I think it's much worse. It's not like we're in a post-ideological era, but I think that we've moved from a certain type of knowledge that was characterized by doubt toward a knowledge that's characterized by certainty. So we've moved from what Lacan called the sujet supposed savoir, the subject supposed to know, toward fundamental presuppositions of knowledge in the other. Like, um, I don't remember which seminar it was, one of the later seminars, Lacan said, um, 
It is the one who knows, not the other who is supposed to know. And I think it's a statement on how we have these certain presuppositions about the other's intentions, the other's politics, and this sort of stuff. I'd like to see an end to that. Um, it, it worries me. Um, and I'd like to see something that we can uh, honestly believe in again, like um, some sort of a, maybe even a, um, a, like some sort of a signifier, whether it's a political signifier or otherwise, that we're willing to offer ourselves up to. And maybe it's communism. I don't know. But I can tell you capitalism doesn't offer a signifier to which I think we're willing to offer ourselves up. This was one of my points that I made to um, Zizek a few years ago. Um, he kept saying, like, okay, you're against Western democratic capitalism or whatever. What's the alternative? And, and for him, at least in the political apparatus, he said, AOC, this sort of stuff. And I said, but wait, like this was what the Mark, and you know, he thinks I'm some sort of anarchist or whatever. So he says, what's your alternative? And this is exactly what Marx used to say to Bakunin. And Marxists have been saying to anarchists for decades and more than a hundred years, and we still hear it. And then the anarchists, what do they do? They go and they try and propose this sort of alternative, this alternative political structure. Um, God, there's been so many ridiculous attempts, like there was one called Participatory Economics, Paricon, which even Noam Chomsky endorsed, this reverse federation, balanced job complexes, these sorts of uh, quasi-utopian structures. And you even see it in the work of somebody like Colin Ward. He says, look at the post postal service. That's how we should structure our society, this sort of stuff. But my idea was just that it's actually even worse. It's not, the, it's not that capitalism, we need an alternative to capitalism. It's that we need to recognize that capitalism is already the alternative. Like it positions itself precisely as an alternative. Like, oh, you don't like this? Go live in a caliphate country or go live in Russia. Or what about like, go live in a tyrannical communist country or something like that this is or what you want to go back to feudalism you know something like that and maybe I, <laughs> well i mean i think we've basically done that anyway and and that's another uh another point i i think we are uh personally i think we're in something like a feudal time today i know it's kind of cliche to say that but it, it feels that way it feels like we're alienated uh, be, estranged between farms again, rather than um, estranged within uh, a particular social structure, like Marx would have maybe looked at. What do you think? What do I think? Um, I think that it's really, I realize, like, uh... I realize that I'm tired of people being so certain themselves also. That's the like counterpoint to that. Like instead of like having the certainty outside, having the certainty inside. And I realize that like, like why social media is such a drag besides all of the corporate issues and things like that uh, and disinformation is just that like every post is someone trying to teach everyone else something like, for, I don't know who needs to know this, but blah, blah, blah. This is what you should do for this. This is what you should do for it. It's like everybody is like all of a sudden like a self-help guru. <laughs> and like, 
like telling everybody else like points of like how they should live their life. And it just really turns me off. I'm I'm all about like, I like more ambiguity and uncertainty and discovery and surprise. You know, I'm really tired of people like feeling like they know everything and having like a really strong opinion on like every issue that pops up also, because like a lot of things that come up, it's like, I, I, I don't study this, so I don't really know, you know, I'm, I'm going to trust my friends or people that I read that I think know more about this than I do. And, you know, I think that's okay because you can't know everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So I, I find myself, my friend even says it to me a lot. He says, why are you always saying, I don't know? It's because I, I don't know. Who knows? You know? <laughs> it's a different position than the one that we used to talk about. Like, right? Like, we used to talk about ideology, what I used, what I'd call idiotology. We used to talk about ideology as this certain type of unknown knowledge. I'm not going to go into the whole thing about Zizek and Donald Rumsfeld, but, you know, it was like there's some sort of repressed knowledge and we need to access it and release it. And as soon as you have this approach, it seems to be capable of authorizing a particular analytical approach that promotes interpretation of the repressed content. And so you can provide your cultural commentary on Donald Rumsfeld and how he didn't know what he knew all too well. And you can provide all your cultural commentary because there's always some sort of repository of knowledge from which you are capable of, of interpreting. And I think, um, I think, um, uh, I don't think we're, we're in that world anymore. I think we're in a world where everybody knows with absolute conviction and they can't seem to be, they can't, you can't seem to, to talk to them. You can't seem to, to, um, to find any, um, any space of, of doubt anymore or, um, or, um, confusion. It's almost like it's horrific. People seem to like have to know. And I just think it's just like, you know, total like super reductionistic, but basic like fear of lack and showing that you lack and, you know, other people seeing that you lack. It's like nobody can stand that on a social level. And then like the people that do need to be sure in their convictions, <laughs> they act like, like I'm just thinking, of course, this whole thing is happening right now with Trump and Mar-a-Lago and all this stuff. And they're like, Oh, like the news commentators, one I've seen was not like this, but like 90% of them are like, oh, like acting like he's so, you know, nonchalant about this information that he took it home by accident, that it's just like, you know, what was he doing? Just leaving it. Anybody could walk in to Mar-a-Lago. They don't have that good of security and find it as if it's not like specifically there to be like sold or traded <laughs> like other governments you know it's like it's like oh yeah he just like happened to have that there and wasn't doing anything with it for the past you know year and a half you know it's like hello can somebody just be like realistic anybody <laughs> as if this wasn't like very intentional and probably has already been sold you know <laughs> to multiple places 
give me a break. So mm. that that kind of yeah, that kind of like the people that need to know are are pretending they don't know. And then everyone else who's like in the same place we are <laughs> living in the same world is like acting very certain about things. And I'm just like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is what happens when you don't know where to begin. <laughs> this is where you end up. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um, talk about uh, uh, split subjectivity. It's <laughs> the, the split between. Um, not not caring so much about knowledge and caring too much about it uh, yeah i find uh, personally i don't I, I guess you're editing this so it's good um i find it personally uh i find myself and maybe it's a, a consequence of my own analysis since we're talking about knowledge i find that knowledge exhausts me and i just um when I talk personally, when I talk to people and they go on their long diatribes, theoretical excursions and so on, I, on the one hand, it feels like I can sense the enjoyment in it. And on the other hand, I just, I don't care about it. I just don't care. Um, so I think... Uh, for me, it's, I think the ultimate discovery would be to find a way out of the cynical position. And it was, it's only psychoanalysis that's done that for me, which makes it very difficult to, um, to, uh, to speak. Except about psychoanalysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, psychoanalysis definitely helped me in that way as well. And now, now I focus mostly on art. If I don't do art all the time, then yeah, I start feeling dead inside again. So <laughs> have to keep <laughs> have to keep the circulation going. Have to keep the circuit. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, things fall flat. But I think it's understandable, especially nowadays. Um, because yeah. And there's also like different ways of knowing. And I also find that uh, that's why like we we commented before, I think before we started recording, that's why I keep the podcast very diverse um, as far as like who I invite on and different perspectives, because I also find that like, you know, uh, like in New York, most of my friends were Lacanian and I love, I love Lacanians and Lacanian discourse. Um, but I also want to make sure that, you know, change it up a little because not everybody understands what we're talking about <laughs> when we talk about, you know, these things. Um, so I want to make sure that, you know, there's more, there's more there for people to chew on and different ways into psychoanalysis um, because it does end up being too, 
it does end up as much as we try to kind of open it and spread it and talk about it. We do have this tendency to like end up in these like kind of very tight knit groups, you know, in different different regions and different theoretical orientations. And like in New York, there's like something like 50 psychoanalytic institutes. And like, you know, before we started Das Imbahagen, literally I, we knew people, I knew people in all these different institutes, but like nobody knew each other or talked to each other. And it was just like, why don't we all like, you know, Jungian, the Kenyans and the Kleinians, we can, it, it actually brings a nice dialogue. It makes people, you know, have some arguments and that's fine. Different points of view it makes people also speak without having to, relying on jargon because they have to be able to explain things to each other that, uh, you know, people from a different theoretical orientation wouldn't understand. Um, so it just kind of, yeah, makes you get outside your box a bit. That's what I like to do. Get, mm -hmm. get myself and others outside of our boxes. Like yeah. with the, with again, with like a LGBT world, you know, for me, I just wish, you know, everybody's sexual, everybody's sexual. It can change, you know? Um, and I, I really don't like arguments to try to make it biological or people were born this way. They're born this way or that way. They're born in this different body. Like, I just want to get away from this kind of science biological based thinking and, and have people understand more that like everyone's born sexual and your sexuality, you know, takes different forms because of your experiences and the way you process things, you know, that's just how it is. <laughs> it's really not that, I mean, it is complicated, but it's really not that complicated. But of course, you know, there's so many bigots that want to murder people because of their sexuality and entire governments that want to murder people. So of course, then we need, you know, laws in place to protect people. Yeah, this uh, this idea of um, getting out of your box, um, I find it resonates for me because um, maybe you know maybe it's even I feel the almost the opposite tendency. I had this weird moment in my life where I converted to Islam. Um, long well, feels like a long time ago now, and so I, you know, I read the Quran a lot, and I noticed something there that maybe was a little different from what I found in philosophy, but also in um, the Judeo-Christian tradition, namely the relationship of particular key figures to caves and well a cave is like a box and you know the judeo-christian tradition to kind of lump it together for the moment is a bit like the platonic philosophical tradition i was thinking you know the idea is you're in a cave you're in a prison you're in a box you need to go out but then you need to come back in so the idea is to get out of your box enlightenment you get out of your box and you go back in and what's fascinating is in islam it, it's like there's a different i mean this is just my personal reading please don't nobody like i'm not saying this is the reading um but there's a sense in which you go in search of your cave you go in search of your box of your prison you know it's quite different than like you're in the prison house of language and so you have to break free in some sort of way. You have to bend the prison bars 
in some poetic creative act to get to get that little bit of jouissance that's out there or whatever. In the Islamic uh, reading, you're in the pagan world from the beginning. It's a world of something like absolute freedom. And it's horrific. I don't want freedom, personally. It's my conviction. Fuck freedom. I don't want it. It's too painful. I want to find, and this is what you find in Asura, um, the seven sleepers of the cave, they're in the pagan world, free to worship or not worship any god they want. Um, and they say, no, fuck that. Well, they don't say fuck that. That's not a good thing. But <laughs> they, they say, not for me. And they go out, I think, into the mountains and they find a cave. They put a dog there to guard the door and they, they fall asleep. So they find a cave and within their box, they're able to sleep. And they're able to dream again. And instead of the nightmare of the world that they saw outside, they can dream again, which is beautiful. At a time when the statistics seem to demonstrate there's a dream, there's the COVID dream project and so on. There's various um, studies that show that we seem to not be dreaming like we used to. In fact, there's a prevalence. That's a good point. So it's nice to be able to go and, and find something to believe in. Um, and this is a, a point I even think was really nicely expressed. I don't know if you saw it um, in the Netflix series Black Mirror, the episode Nosedive. She's like out in the world. I don't remember how it works, but you have to show how much you're enjoying yourself in order to get currency or something like that. And at the end, she just she can't do it anymore. Like. I'm I'm done enjoying myself. I'm done trying to fit in with these with this fraternal society. Um, and she becomes the monster that she is. And they put her in, if I remember, it's been years that I've, since I've seen this. They put her in prison and she's separated. She finally has a separation from her, from a person that clearly she has an interest in. Um, and she, behind the bars, she's crying with a smile on her face, saying the worst shit. And it's beautiful. The music is like really nice and, and it ends. And you're supposed to be like, what a beautiful moment. She found her prison. And I think in some sense, that's what we need today. We need a prison that, that can bring us this happiness. The prison house of language, ultimately, I think one that we can tolerate because I think in some sense we're not in symbolic language anymore. Yeah. But see, I am the pansexual pagan, so I like it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also in the very safe quarters of Sweden. So it's oh, like it's, Sweden. Yeah, I'm in Sweden. And it's oh. like until I till I moved to Sweden, I actually had no idea what the point of a government was except for to like torture us <laughs> and exploit us basically, but cause I'm from the U S so it was like, uh, yeah, it was just like, you know, what is the point of this government? They, they don't even like make the roads nice and the bridges they are all falling down. Like everything's a mess. So we're just exploited and you know, we don't get healthcare in return for our taxes or anything. But mm -hmm. since I moved to Sweden, it's been five years now. Um, I'm like, oh, this is what a government's supposed to do. It's like, I understand now the function. And I think that the, that when a government actually works, which I think is sadly very rare, <laughs> um, I see like it's, it's kind of like that. It's got you in this kind of protective prison box 
it's not really a prison, but you know, it's like got a structure. You're in a structure and the, and there are rules, you know, there are laws and the laws c- kind of make sense <laughs> where you're like, I understand why those laws are there and everyone abides by these kind of rules, these laws and and then has uh, is able to move around as freely as possible within that structure, you know. Like the unions here are amazing. Like when we moved, we moved from Stockholm. We bought a house last year and moved to a, a small town. And like the the moving company, it's like the, the workers are only wor- allowed to work a certain number of hours. So they loaded everything and they drove it down here like three hours, four hours, drive down here. And then they slept here overnight. And, you know, we we went out to dinner and then they came in the morning and they unloaded the stuff and then we took them out to lunch and then they drove back so that they still had like very reasonable work days. And I'm thinking in the U.S., this would never be like this. You know, it's like it's like the workers' rights are protected and everyone gets five weeks of vacation and you have to take your vacation. You're not allowed to just like save it up, you know, like you have to take your vacation okay. every year and it's paid. It's like, oh, that's that's a nice rule for everyone. Any full-time worker has that. That's also, that also would never happen in the U.S., you know? So it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. That sounds- <laughs> so, so I thought you were it's a American. good daddy. It's a good daddy. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're good daddies. Good daddies do exist. They are having some. They are having some issues for Sweden now. I'm not gonna like pretend Sweden's perfect. Um, it's like even like the Christian. The, there's like a Christian Democrat group. There's like eight political parties, I think. And uh, even them, like when all this abortion hell started happening in the U.S., um, the Christian Democrats here were like, uh, "I want all the other political parties to sign something saying that abortion is health care." And that is protected. And I was like, the Christians did that. So like. It shows, you know, what's great about it is it shows that, you know, because sometimes I get into this stupid belief, I would call it a moronic belief, that it's as if civil society just doesn't exist anymore. And I know it's because I'm taking the stupid little argument I have and just taking it to the end to see what it can do. But it's clear something like civil society still exists in the West, at least. You're, you're, you're demonstrating it right now in what you're saying. You can actually affect change. You know, I, I'm sure you can go out, there can be some protests and so on. It's not ideal. We want things much better. And this isn't the end point. But like when I look at, for example, Russia, you know, I think the strongest critique we can make of Russia is to say, well, there's basically no civil society there. Like, you know, like the difference between Russia right now and the West, for me, having lived in Russia for a while, I realized that, like, like, if you think of public protest as, like, a measure, you know, at least in the West, you can have, like, a public protest, let's say, um, uh, abortion rights, whatever it is, like a public protest. Uh, And then the repressive apparatus maybe comes in and squashes your protest and then you say fuck them you know and then you fight harder and and this sort of stuff i much prefer that to what's going on in russia where you know what's interesting is you there's not even a repressive force in russia like and i mean it in a freudian sense almost mm. like before If there's a political issue, before it even gets to the point of what we might have called civil society, it's already gone, like before it's off the ground. 
Like somebody's going to protest. The FSB already knows before they even go out with their sign and arrest them. So you don't even see the movements. You don't even read the 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 period periodicals and 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 so on. And so in that sense, um, you know, my thesis of whatever foreclosure, I think, uh, breaks down a little bit because it's clear there is something still of a civil society, but it, it doesn't mean that there's not still some sort of a stubborn component there that's coming to the fore in the West. But, yeah. So, but I thought you were American. I am American, but I married a Swede. Okay. I understand. I understand. Mm, so then I moved to Sweden, which was the whole process in itself. <laughs> But now I'm a Swedish citizen. So wow. now I am both American and Swedish citizen. Wow. That feels good. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to, yeah, no, they can't kick you out. <laughs> it's good to be rooted. <laughs> it, is, it is good to be rooted. Like I say, I'm 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 trying to find my prison. Right now, I'm literally am without a home like country. You know, I'm on a temporary protection order with the European Union, which allows me to live and work for one year in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just moved into a new place a week ago, not even a week ago. I've been moving for four months, I think, or I don't even know. Time's a blur. You know, so it's like. Um, no, being unmoored is is terrible. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of movement. Well, and that's the thing with with the wars and the and natural disasters. You know, it's like, of course, the the, the people who die. You know, that's tragic and that's very important to mention. But the media really only focuses on like kind of concrete statistics like that, like you know how much things cost and how many people died. But it doesn't account at all for like how many people were dislocated, how many people you know have had their families fall apart like somebody in family dies that affects how many other people for the rest of their lives you know what I mean how much trauma that's created for for communities in that way like uh, I lived through Hurricane Andrew which was at the time the worst hurricane that hit the U.S. in 1992 and it's like you know there's a horrible body count and houses were destroyed a house was destroyed but then there's like this whole rebuilding period and my parents didn't make it they just it was too much stress and their their marriage ended and it's just like uh you know, it's just, it affects people for the rest of their lives. And you think of how many natural disasters are happening on a regular basis. You know, not only the war in Ukraine, of course, now, but the, the wars in Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, ongoing, 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 a lot of which have Russian involvement. <laughs> you know, like this guy's had his hands in Sudan, Afghanistan, Syria, and Ukraine. You know, he's like, uh, he's been a problem for a long time. And I hope this gets resolved soon. <laughs> not hopeful. No. Not hopeful. Yeah. Well, is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to mention? <laughs> Nothing that I that I, I particularly wanted to mention. Yeah. No. Well, it was nice having you. Yeah, it was nice to. to Even though we get depressed, <laughs> I think that's just reality. You know, I think it's um, reality. And especially when you're unmoored and this war is going on, I mean, you're supposed to be happy, you know? That would be weird. That would be probably an unhealthy reaction. 
Well, you know, I know you wanted, we were maybe coming to an end. Oh, it doesn't matter. I don't have anything which else. Is, which is even a relief and end sometimes. But um, what's interesting about, you said depression and its reality, the sort of depressive realism, is that I think, I hesitate to say it, it's very provocative, um, but I wonder if there's something very happy about depression. That's what concerns me. This sort of stubbornness, you know, Lacan said the subject is happy in relation to the tribe. This idea that, like, uh, the problem with depression for me is that it's, um, I, I can be too happy in it, and it's hard to find a way to relinquish it. And I, um, so I'm in search of that. And I think there is some hope. There's hope in dialogues like this, discussions, moments where, where things kind of slip up a little bit and there's um, surprises, uh, moments where there's resonance. Um, I find that exciting where, where there's, um, you, you like ambiguity. I think it's related to ambiguity. I think if there's any hope, it's there because it, it's, um, it, can, it can break us out of the, um, the certainties that I think are part and parcel of the certain, the, some of the traumas that we're facing right now. But yeah, um, why don't we stop? Okay, yeah. I'll let you stop the session. <laughs> Thank you so much. Cool. It's nice to meet you for the, like, this is the first time I think we've actually talked, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have one more question. Did I hear you say, uh, Das Ubenheg, are you a member of that New York group? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. A founding member, I will say. Oh, founding member. Apologies. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I, That's I, okay. Why would uh, you know? <laughs> I don't really know a lot about the group, uh, in fact, but I, I mean, I've heard of it and I've heard it throughout the years, but I don't, I don't know. It's fairly new, though. Right, it's about it's ten years old this year. Okay, I was gonna. Which is fairly new in the in the scheme of things, but also yeah. like that's a good milestone, ten years. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, very cool. Very. I cool. think so too. It basically started Jameson, Jameson Webster, and I, and Michael Garfinkel were all at um, New York Psychoanalytic, and pretty frustrated with our training psychoanalytic training as it's called there not formation <laughs> um and yeah they did a lot jameson and michael were a year ahead of me and they like wrote letters to the boards and they did a lot of work to try to help them kind of get up to date you know and try to like help them yeah with their syllabus a little bit and yeah make it a little more exciting because like my year for example i think the the year that i started as a candidate there were six of us. And then um, the second year was like a couple of people got pregnant and ended up going part time. And I think there was like three of us. And then by the time I was in my third year, it was just me and this one other candidate in my year. So they ended up like putting us, thankfully, after a while in other classes. But, um, you know, me and this guy had been in these classes together for three years. We had nothing in common. He was he was a psychiatrist and a neuro, uh, neuro neuropsychologist. He had a PhD in neuropsychology and he was a psychiatrist. And he, oh, 
let me just tell you this story real quick. I have so many <laughs> training nightmare stories, but you'll appreciate this one. So at the end of the second year, I'm in class with this one other guy. <laughs> we have nothing in common. We don't agree on anything <laughs> and um, have nothing to say to each other. And the teacher somehow, you know, I don't know, doesn't have time to teach everything that he had planned to teach by the end of the, the year. So he says, okay, well, we only have one more class left. What are we going to read? This paper that I wrote, <laughs> who the, the teacher was an evolutionary biologist and is somehow an analyst. Um, and also everybody, New York Psychoanalytic is where um, Brenner was. Charles Brenner was there. who's just like, everything is a compromise formation. So all of the, all of the faculty there were trained and supervised by Charles Brenner. And like, literally that's like all they believed. It's like, well, you know, you have your id and you have the reality principle and you have to make a compromise formation. And I was like, okay, well, that's pretty simple. Like, is there anything else we should know? <laughs> I get it. I almost, I, I almost, I don't agree with it, but I almost empathize because it's like, well, I got this thing here and let's just like, let's just. You can apply it to everything. That's what they did. <laughs> I was it, like, well, yeah. it does kind of make sense for everything, but I think humans might be a little more complicated than that. <laughs> but anyway, he's like, we can either read this paper that I wrote or we can read uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle okay. <laughs> in, one, in one class. <laughs> and I was like, mm, I, I'm going to vote for the Freud. <laughs> and then, of course, the guy who was with me was like, I want to read the teacher, the paper you wrote, professor. You know, and I was just like, whatever. So he's like, OK, we'll fit both in <laughs> to our last one and a half hour class. <laughs> And the, and the professor actually is like, okay, here Ford said this, here Ford said that. and But then he gets to this death drive thing and clear, this is what he told us in the analytic training. But clearly Ford was just getting old and like basically was like delusional and this makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective. And so we're just going to discount the rest of this paper. Oh, and that's when I was like, mm, I have to go. I don't think this is the right training institute you know what, for me. <laughs> you, know what, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like you had like you and um, uh, Jameson and uh, I didn't catch the other person. His name, name was Michael Garfinkel. Oh, and Michael. He's a Kleinian. Oh, is he a Kleinian? I have mm -hmm. a lot of respect for Kleinians. Yeah. I love Kleinians. Um, they, um, it's this, um, it's like you had your founding act and then your proposition you know, it's like, <laughs> it's you, know, true. you remove yourself from the IPA and you tried, you know, and you had your insurrection and you built your thing. Yeah, exactly. We tried, we tried it your way. <laughs> Didn't work out. Yeah. And then that's how it was founded. So we left and we basically, Jameson like wrote an email to like, I don't know, 10 people or something. And she was like, you know, I want to get you all in a room together because you're all great. And yeah, like basically we can do this ourselves. We don't need, we don't need these like dinosaurs at this, at these institutes because we living in New York, you meet so many people. Everyone comes through there. We already met like all the analysts we like to read. So we would just like, when we hear somebody was coming to talk at Columbia or NYU or something, we'd just be like, Hey, we have this group of like, rogue psychoanalysts <laughs> information do you want to come and talk to our group too and they'd all be like sure of course you know so we just started having events and we had them all the time until I moved basically and then apparently since I moved it's not happening like 
you know, like we were having events like every week for a couple of years, a few years. Um, but since I moved, apparently it's not happening weekly. They're more like one-off events now, but that's fine too. Everything evolves and yeah, is what it is, what needs to be okay. in its time. So how did you, why did you choose the name? Das Umbahagen is from Das Umbahagen in their culture. We were the discontent. We were discontent we were the with the, with the psychoanalytic culture, basically. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. That's yeah, great. it was fun. It was a good time. And I think, so it was basically 2012 to 2017 was like full on. We were doing events all the time. And then now there's been like some online things and things like that. But also like I have a, I've made friends with some Swedish psychoanalysts of which there are very few, but they do exist. <laughs> and uh, like one of them's going to New York. Um, so I basically like wrote to the listserv like, hey, who wants to help like put it to, together an event for this Swedish psychoanalyst that's going to be in New York. And then we were able to find him a room at the new school. And so he's going to be able to give a talk there. And so it's really great for that kind of networking and making sure people can yeah, keep networking and cross-pollinating. and Yeah. So is your group, I'm sorry for asking so many questions, but That's now okay. like, I'm really, I'm interested. How does, so you're, this group, um, is it, is it primarily uh, just a gathering space for discussion, networking, or are you doing other activities too? So what we did was it's an acephalic group, right? There's no leader or board. But what we also learned, we learned a lot from trying to have an acephalic group is that even when you try to make everything equally, you know, everyone has can do what they want. Still, people want, people tend to want a master, you know? People tend to want, like people would write me and Jameson like, oh, I want to do an event on this topic. Is that okay? And we're like, yes. <laughs> the answer is always yes. It's always okay. Whatever right. you want to do, like the whole point of this is like we have a network. And like if you have an idea or something you're passionate about, you want to do a reading group or a peer supervision group or an event or invite a certain speaker, like even if the speaker costs money, then you like write to everyone else. Who else is interested in hearing this person? Like we'll all chip in and like bring them out to talk, you know, things like that. So it's basically like whatever you want to do, you have like a built in network of people that will help you get it done, like help you find a room to have the event, et cetera, make sure it's promoted um, and, and show up. You know, and then we all showed up to each other's events and like learn what each other was excited about. So yeah. it was really, it's really great for that. Um, and it's still a good network online, um, but it's mostly like, yeah, it's like a list of people network and post events they're having. And also in 2012, so the social media landscape was a lot different than it is now. Like it wasn't so present right. like yeah. it is now. Yeah. Um, so now I think like in that respect, social media has taken a lot of that kind of, um yeah the take has taken that responsibility on are you um, are you doing any um let's say in some relation to the group are you doing any um i don't know what you might call it analytic formations or or um advertising analysts who are i don't know if membership is a word probably not Something like that, though, or is it is it mostly just organizing uh, uh, spaces where people can explore ideas? In a yeah, theory? there's definitely there, that's a good idea. Though we don't like have a list of analysts who are involved on the website, but we probably maybe should. 
Um, but we have like a list of resources and like different people that have different, you know, podcasts or different part of different facilities and things like that, like things we're associated with. And it's just basically people who are, yeah, members, part of the group, um, and things that they are already are doing that, that are also resources for, for anybody. And you also, you don't have to like be part of the group in any way. I mean, at this point, it's basically a listserv and a website, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then people you can come to to ask questions for information. But we've definitely wanted to be a resource for people who are also free, uh, frustrated with analytic training. Like, right. Yeah. So we so we have been able to like help people either if they want to stay in their training, they can get like supplemental uh, education this way, whether it's like reading groups or studying groups, or if you want to find like a Lacanian analyst, or you want somebody to supervise you, um, you know, you can find it that way. Cause that's basically what I ended up doing. It's like, I was in this formal training and then I just had the epiphany that, you know, being a psychoanalyst is like studying psychoanalysis, being supervised and undergoing your own analyses. And I was like, uh, you know, fuck this. I'm going to go find a Lacanian analyst and a Lacanian supervisor and join a Lacanian cartel, you know? that's what I'm going to do. So that's what I did. Um, and we definitely can help people find those things, you know, if that's, if that's what yeah. they're interested in. So you're probably very close with Aptreku in New York. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting. Now I know a little bit more about this group that I've heard about so much, but never yeah. it's what, it is whatever you need it to be for you. So <laughs> that's what it is. And actually, since I, I noticed, because I started the listserv and I noticed I started it October 29th, 2012. So I was thinking on October 29th, 2022 to have some sort of like Zoom gathering meeting or something. Because what we used to do when, when we were all in New York um, is that we would basically like once or twice a year have these general meetings where we would all get together and just like basically have, or whoever wanted to show up would get together and basically just have talks about how we thought it was going. And, you know, there was a certain point where it felt like even though we were trying to be headless, like there was a few people who were always doing everything basically, but that's what I realized just happens in groups. Um, but you we made what, sure you know what they have at the, sorry for interrupting you. That's but okay. you, know they, you know what they have at the evil organization of the Malarians, you know, what they, <laughs> you know what they have over there, of course, is the, is it the designation AME, which I always pronounce AME like friend. Um, it's the, it's the analyst who becomes a member, which, doesn't necessarily give them de facto power or anything like that, but something of the sort almost in the sense that like, because they've, they're recognized by others as contributing so much, it's like somehow there's a certain type of weight. You, you get the, you at least get a title. It's not a political weight, you know, but it's something. So. Yeah. It's interesting. Because there I mean, really that... are people who tend to work a lot harder than others. Yeah, no, they are. And that's and even when you say like, hey, anybody else can help out or, or set things up, people just kind of start looking into you to do it. Jameson and I had one of the last general meetings that we had when I was there. Jameson and I had kind of like a breakdown and we were like, other people need to help. <laughs> 
like we can't just keep setting up and like hosting and emceeing like everything you know like please and then and other people did you know people were like oh okay like we get it now you guys need a break so they actually like stepped up and people started making events and we were like oh it can it can survive without us that's really good to know they needed you though to tell them to tell them it was okay you know it's got to be this burning it's the permission people really want permission yeah and even when you're like you have infinite permission they just they they want their prison yeah (laughs) they want their little prison (laughs) that's a good place to stop this is a great place to stop yeah thank you so much for (laughs) that bye bye thank you so much for listening to rendering unconscious podcast you've just heard a discussion with dr Dwayne roussel for more follow him on social media on instagram at giving what i don't have and at twitter at roussel Dwayne. that's r-o-u-s-s-e-l-l-e Dwayne. as well you can visit his website drdwaynerussell.com And now, if I could just get clear, from the album Follow My Voice, a collaboration I did with Per Olund, available at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. Enjoy. The enigma is not the beginning. It is already secondary. It emerges against this background of a forced choice of meaning. It is only against this background that the whole story of enigmatic message of the other can take off, of searching for meaning, of desire for understanding, a presupposition that the symbolic reality of the field of the other is coherent, that the other knows. When he was done, I rolled over, pulled up my pants and zippered them, and then sat up and started to straighten my hair to scramble away, intending to achieve a safe distance, sit up and have a cool, reasonable conversation with him. He was probably drunk, and if I could get clear, I could handle him easily enough. If I could just get clear. If I could just get a fear. If I could just get a fear. Symbols of transformation. The blood, however, seems to suggest the cycle wasn't complete. Other inner figures appeared in his fantasies, like Ka, a kind of earth spirit, but the most important was Philemon, 
who became an inner guru. In paintings he did at the time, which he collected in what he called the Red Book. The symbolic aid distinct in being specified, as it were, as a whole. What is striking, however, is that the true whole is here, at the site where it is revealed that there is no other of the other. This presupposes or implies that one chooses to speak the tongue that one effectively speak. In actual fact, one does no more than imagine to oneself that one is choosing it. Moreover, what resolves the issue is that at the end of the day, one creates this tongue. What is taken from the past and how it is projected? What is promoted and what isn't? The obvious explanation is that the change in behavior of the loved one is intolerable and its inconsistency means that the subject chooses to believe in two different people rather than one person who can both gratify and frustrate. Perhaps through their successive presences and absences. Dishan replaced the human body with machine imagery and thematized representation of the female subject, object. Her use of technology and mechanomorphic forms makes connections between the human body and machine and explores sexuality and threats against the body. She predated structuralism which theorizes how different science systems codify and shape understanding of the world. In her contributions of word and image and her interest in sound and music, the body and figuration were abandoned altogether in favor of an even more gender anonymous approach have explored geometric patterns and attempted to break aesthetic expression down into the simplest forms. Data women drove an even greater loosening of content in suitably diverse ways. Whether the fragmentation of the body, the challenge to conventional forms of representation, or the removal of the unstable figure altogether. 
These radical gestures constituted attempts to find new means of representation and expression. We live in a world of systems, of structure. We are raised to believe that this is inevitable, the natural order of things. Science proves it's so. But what happens when we start to question this order, dare to challenge it? And what would happen if we break it down, disassemble it, cut it up? Disassemble it, cut it up.